difficulties this morning, but hopefully those are mostly behind us. The rain sounds like it stopped right on time. Got a microphone that is not muted. I think that technical difficulty might have been on my end, actually, but um, a lot of strange things happening this morning. But we're gathered together as the Lord's church to hear from the Lord in His Word. So we just read from 1 Peter chapter 1, the beginning of Peter's epistle. Now I invite you to turn with me to the end of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 5, and we will conclude our study of this epistle, Lord willing, this morning looking at verses 9 through 14. Last week we began looking at Peter's final exhortations under the idea of sober humility, and today we want to look at his final exhortation to these dearly beloved saints that they must stand firm with unwavering resolve. Stand firm with unwavering resolve. Now, we have been in the book of First Peter for the better part of this year. Uh, by my count, I think we spent, this will be uh, the 26th Sunday, exactly half of a year, that we have spent looking at Peter's epistle. He has given us much instruction. He offered much encouragement to these dear saints as they were suffering and my prayer is that as we have studied this, that we have taken that exactly away, that we have been encouraged, that we have been instructed, and that we have been sanctified, that we have been pressed to look to our Savior, that we are being conformed to the image of Christ through the, the teaching and preaching of His Word. Now, Peter's main topic has been that of persecution that of suffering within the church. And while suffering may not, suffering persecution may not be directly upon us today in this land, surely we can see the writing on the wall that it's coming. And we see and we have seen our brothers and sisters across the world suffer greatly for the faith. And Peter's final exhortations here are with that in mind, the, the idea of suffering for the faith. He, ha he has this kind of one last instruction, this one last exhortation to give to the Lord's people as he closes this letter. So with that, I want to read the text before us, 1 Peter chapter 5. Um, to grab some context, we'll back up to verse 6 and read the rest of the chapter. Please stand with me, if you will, as we read the Lord's Word. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 14, this is the inerrant and inspired word of God. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, but resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, 
exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings. And so does my son, Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. May the Lord add blessing to the reading of his word, and may he write it upon our hearts. You may be seated. Now let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you, and with all of the distractions that have taken place this morning that could hinder our focus and could could distract our minds, we just want to take a moment to quiet ourselves before you. Lord, you are great and greatly to be praised. You're the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who is exalted in the heavens, doing just exactly as you please. Lord, who has known the mind of the Lord and who has become your counselor? For you are above all. You are infinite in wisdom and power and holiness. Who are we, O Lord, that you should love us, that you should care for us, that you should adopt us as your sons, that you should send your beloved Son to take our sin upon his shoulders so that we could be forgiven? Lord, you have. What a great love you have given us. What amazing grace you have and continue to and will pour out on us. Lord, as we look to your word, we long for eternity. We see your instruction that we must stand firm in the face of all suffering, and we ask for sufficient grace to do just that. We ask, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would come and move powerfully in each of our hearts today. Lord, would you write your word upon our hearts? Would you humble us? Bring us to repentance. Would you reveal to us areas in which we need to change, where we need to grow, where we need to put off the flesh and put on Christ? Would you, Lord, instruct us in the way that we are to live? Would you lift our gaze off of the temporal And fix our eyes upon Christ and the eternal prize that we have in and through Him. Lord, if you do not move in us through your Holy Spirit, then we have gathered in vain. For the greatest wisdom of men is but foolishness before you. So, Lord, would you... Come and change us. Would you sanctify us by the truth of your word? Would 
Lord, help us to give the reverent attention that you require. Help us to worship you in reverence even as we sit under your word, Lord, for all of our gathering is worship before you. It's to the praise of your wondrous glory. So, Lord, would you receive our worship today? Would you conform us to the image of Christ? And would you receive all praise and honor and glory do your name. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> so looking back, um, I think the date was around January 30th when we began studying First Peter. And we began looking at Peter's primary purpose in this letter, that we are sojourners. We are aliens. We are pilgrims on a journey. And in that, we are called to glorify God as sojourners. We do that by looking toward the blessed hope of the inheritance that we have in our salvation that is won and given to us and kept by Christ. Peter has this idea then that has kind of stayed with us through this epistle that we are sojourners. We are on a journey. This is not our eternal home. But while we walk on this earth, we have a duty. We are called to glorify God in all things. And we do that, as Peter writes in the context of suffering, we do that by fixing our eyes upon Christ. We do that by not being weighed down by the weighty, difficult trials and tribulations that we walk through. Those things will come. Those things are upon many among us. But we are called to stand firm and to remain and to fix our eyes upon Christ as we walk on this journey to our eternal home. For we have a great hope. We have an imperishable salvation. And it's a great hope and it's an imperishable salvation, not because of anything we've done, but because we serve a great God. We have a great Savior who saves us and who keeps us. The Lord calls us to himself in Christ. He made the provision for our salvation, and then he sees us through to the end. This is why we rejoice. This is why we remain. This is why we stand firm, not because we are strong, but because of the mighty power that God works in us. So this is a letter about suffering. Kind of weaves its way in through the whole of Peter's writing. It's a letter about suffering, but don't be confused, dear friends. This is a letter about hope. It's a letter of hope because Peter continually shifts our eyes. He continually turns our gaze from the present to the eternal, to the future glory that will be revealed at the coming of Christ. So as we come to the end of this letter, one question that we ought to ask ourselves is, do I look with hope and joy to the future return of Christ? There's this glory that is coming. Do you hold that as your strength and your hope? As we come to the end, Peter as you get to conclusions in, in scriptures and letters in scripture, they can often be a little bit challenging to, to preach because 
there are many ways that we could go. Uh, Peter has a lot that he writes in, in this conclusion. But I think kind of a common thread through all of this is this idea that we must stand firm. And, and he talks about standing firm in a few different ways, that we stand firm by looking to our fellow saints. We stand firm through suffering by looking to that future glory that we just discussed. And we stand firm because we know we stand in God's grace. So let's dive in. And again, this is going to be kind of a broad stroke through what Peter writes to us today. We firstly want to look at the idea of standing firm with the saints. Stand firm with the saints. Verse 9. Peter says, but resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Now, let's reset the context under that. Resist him. Resist who? Resist the devil. He prowls like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. We are in a war. You are in a war for the spiritual health of your eternal soul. Now, that war is won. Praise God. In Christ, it is won. It was finished at the cross. But make no mistake, you are in a spiritual battle. And as Peter writes that, then he shifts us to the hope of our victory. He, he, he tells us that we are standing firm because we are standing in Christ. Victory is assured in Christ. But with this battle raging, where does his instruction go? He's told us what to do, to be a sober spirit, to be on the alert, to resist the devil, to be firm in our faith. But then he has more to say about how we resist the devil. And that instruction comes in looking at our fellow saints. He says, knowing that same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. I don't want to rehash all of what we said last time thinking about this battle raging, but we need that context to understand just how important it is to look to our fellow saints as we try to stand firm. We know that Satan will stop at nothing. He will bring his fiercest, vilest, most wicked attacks at the saint in order to try to pull the saint away from God, which he cannot do, and an attempt to steal from the glory of God. That is Satan's goal. That is what he will do, and he will stop at nothing. There's no attack that is too vile or too wicked for our enemy. But what is our response? We stand firm. We oppose him. We remain. We have a firm faith. We fight spiritual battles with spiritual weapons. Dear friends, look to the example of Christ as to how to fight the devil. We remember that Satan went to tempt Jesus. Now, Jesus was perfect and could not ever sin, but Satan in his vile wickedness thought he would tempt even Christ. And so Jesus is out in the wilderness. Satan comes to tempt him, and what does Jesus do? He stands firm upon the Word of God. So stand firm upon the truth. Resist the devil with the truth of God's Word. Have that Word stored up and hidden 
in your heart. Have that word ready to recall in your mind. Have that word upon your lips coming out of your mouth. Stand firm and resist the devil with the truth. We oppose the deceiver by being anchored in and grounded to the word of God. So that is the battle raging. And then Peter, in what would almost, if we didn't know the whole of God's Word, he he sets up this great battle and sets up how we are to fight. And then he says, and remember, your fellow saints are suffering the same experiences. Those same sufferings are being accomplished in and by and through your brethren who are in the world. So understand that suffering is not foreign to the believer. Just because you might be suffering, and you may look around and see that that not everyone else is suffering to the same extent that you are, whether persecution or other circumstances in life, understand that suffering is promised to the saint. That's what we saw Wednesday night at the end of Philippians chapter 1, that we have these two great gifts, these two great promises, that we will be saved by Christ and that we will suffer with Christ. So suffering will come. Some people, some saints will suffer less than others. And praise the Lord for that. The Lord does not bring suffering beyond what we are able to handle. He gives a great grace, a strong grace to hold us and to bear us up, but He does not press us beyond what His grace will see us through. And so some will suffer less than others, and we rejoice over that. Rejoice with those who, whose affliction may be less than yours. But at the same time as you do that, you also mourn with those who mourn. You weep with those who weep. So suffering is coming. And Peter says what, what's really an interesting thing as he talks about this. He says, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished, are being accomplished by the brethren who are in the world. Being accomplished speaks to something that's being worked in someone. It's it's the Greek word epiteleo. You you might hear teleo and, and understand that that speaks of something being brought to finish, to completion, to perfection. Well, the word epi means upon, or within. So these sufferings are being worked upon and worked within your fellow saints to bring them to completion, to bring them to perfection. They're being accomplished not by the saints, but by the God who is working these sufferings in his people. So what does that tell us? It tells us that our suffering and our hardships are not pointless because God is at work in them. It also tells us that they are not endless because they are being accomplished. There is an end result in mind. Our trials have an end in purpose, which is our holiness, our conformity to Christ. And they have an end in duration, and that is when that purpose is fulfilled. Now, the Lord may bring you out of a season of trial in this life and give you a season of blessing and prosperity and peace. But the ultimate end in every trial and every suffering comes that day when you cross over from this present life into the eternal glory of 
the Lord. That is when suffering has accomplished its purpose. Because as we sang, the calm will be the better for the storms that we endure. As the storms rage, as, as suffering comes and increases and presses upon us, something is being done. The Lord is working in us. He is purifying us. He is refining. He is taking away the dross and the cares and the concerns of this world so He can accomplish the purpose of making you holy. Hebrews 12, 14 says, Pursue the holiness without which you will not see the Lord. So let your trials have their intended results. James begins his letter by saying, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Count it all joy. Rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. Count your suffering as joy. Because in that suffering, the Lord is accomplishing exactly what He intends. If you are His saint, and if you're walking with Him through the storm and through the trial. Peter also says that, that these experiences are being accomplished by the brethren. He says, by your brethren who are in the world. So that's the same word that Peter used back in chapter 2. He said, honor all people but love the brotherhood. And that idea of a brotherhood is really more what this term is getting at. It's not just referring to someone who is a brother or sister in Christ, but it's that idea of a unity, a, a fellowship, a communion that you have with your fellow saints. All who are in Christ are made one in Him. There's no distinction. There's no division. There's no disunity. We are in Christ together. And when you suffer alongside of a brother or sister because you are bearing up their burdens or they are bearing you up in your time of suffering, there is a fellowship that you know that is like no other fellowship. There's a brotherhood. There's a strength. There's a power that the Lord works in His people as we walk together through trials. <clears throat> so take courage. Take courage in the testimony that you hear of the saints around the world who are suffering for the sake of Christ. Take courage and take joy when you hear of one standing firm, but don't stop there. Go stand in the gap. Intercede for your fellow saints. Take them before the throne of God's grace in prayer and intercession and, and do that continually because they are your brethren. We are a brotherhood. We walk and we war together. So stand firm by looking at the work that the Lord is accomplishing, even in your fellow saints. The attacks of Satan will come. Remember, that's the, the immediate context of what Peter's saying here. The attacks of Satan will come. And when they do, stand firm. 
whether it's the attacks of persecution or when it's Satan trying to work another trial or tribulation to, to pull a saint away from the Lord. Dear friend, you stand firm. Stand firm and know and, and take courage and draw strength from knowing that the Lord works these things in you for your good, for his glory, and so that the, the other saints who are around you, your brothers and sisters in Christ, might be strengthened. And when you're weak, yes, you depend on the Lord fully and wholly, but also look to your fellow saints. See the work the Lord is doing in them as they suffer and take courage. Take courage. Be made strong when you see a fellow saint standing firm because we're united. We're together. We have fellowship. We have communion with one another. So draw strength from those who stand firm in trial. Now, we really could keep kind of the same heading here, but just, just to give you another hook to hang your thoughts on, looking at verses 10 and 11, we see that Peter wants to specifically talk about suffering. So stand firm with the saints, and now let's stand firm through suffering. Verse 10, verse 11. He says, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. So you notice at the beginning of verse 10, Peter writes almost assumingly so. Now, we don't want to take this lightly but it's almost just like, like an assumption. After you suffered for a little while, suffering's going to come. And it's only going to be for a little while. Because the present suffering is only temporary. The glory that the Lord works, the glory that the Lord produces through our hardship is eternal. It's momentary light affliction that produces an eternal weight glory. And suffering may not feel momentary. It may not feel light. The light at the end of the tunnel may often grow dim. But you, dear saint, press on. Press on because that light is still at the end of the tunnel. That light is Christ. It's Christ who is coming back in glory. He's coming back to call us to himself in that glory. Long-term trials are obviously the greatest trial that the Lord can bring in our lives. But it's also, I think, one of, if not the greatest way that the Lord makes his people more like his son. Because as you walk through trial, the, the Lord tells us they are for a little while. But, but we live in the, in the temporal. We are temporal beings. Our minds can't comprehend eternity. What we comprehend is pain and suffering now. And as you do that day after day after day, you're weaned more and more and more off the world. Because you see that the things of this world are so worthless they're meaningless because they have no eternal value. 
if you are going to press on, and I'm, I'm not talking about weeks of trial, maybe not even months of trial, but years and decades of suffering, you come to realize that nothing in this world matters. It means nothing. You are so taken away from the cares of life because the only thing that can get you through from one day to the next is the glory of God, a desire to experience the fullness of His glory. That is what the Lord works as He walks you through the fiery furnace of trials. He is like a refiner of silver or gold. He's purifying you one step at a time. It's a process. It takes time. It must be done properly. And the Lord in His infinite wisdom knows exactly what that properly is. That's what He does. He works in us an eternal weight of glory. And so we press on, but why and how do we do this? It's exactly because of that weight of glory. Peter continues, he says, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ. You're suffering for a little while, but the glory of eternity comes. The word called there, that God has called you to his eternal glory, glory is in the aorist tense. What that means is it's a past action with present effective and future effective results. So a past work that has past implications, present implications, and future implications. That is what God has done. He called you in eternity past. He called you out of darkness into his marvelous light through the work of Christ at the cross. He is working that salvation into you today. And he will bring that salvation to completion on the day that he calls you to his eternal glory. He called you out of sin and he calls you into his glorious light and presence. So... It's just good news all around. Called you out of sin, but it doesn't just bring you to this place of being neutral. He calls you out of sin. He calls you off the pathway to hell so that you can be adopted as his son. So that you can be a joint heir with your very Savior. So that you can have all the blessings of sonship. You can rule in some glorious and mysterious way alongside of the one who laid down his life so that you could be free from sin. That is what God does. He works in that in you. He he brings that glory to view. He calls you to that glory. And he who calls you will complete the good work that he began. Jesus prayed in John 17, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am. He's speaking when he goes back to heaven. He says, so that they may see my glory which you have given me, for you loved me before the foundation of the world. You realize that Jesus' prayers are always answered. He always prayed the Father's will, and those prayers are always answered. So that is a promise. 
It's a promise that Jesus wants you, his sheep, those who are given to him, to be with him where he is, to be with him in glory so that you can see his glory, that you can enjoy it, so that you can join in in glorifying him perfectly. That is what we're called to. And then Peter gives this great encouragement at the end of verse 10. He says, This God who's called us to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect and confirm and strengthen and establish you. So really, what that is is a list of synonyms. It's just similar words stacked on top of each other. I think really just to show us the weight and the glory of the work that the Lord will do. He will perfect you. He will fit you. He will equip you. He will prepare you for that to which He calls you. He calls you to glory, so He will fit you and equip you for glory. Not only does He perfect us, but He confirms us. We are set. We are fixed. We are established. Romans 16 says that we're established according to the gospel of the preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are established in Him by the preaching of the gospel. We're only made fit for heaven. We're only able to be brought to the Lord's glory through the good news, through the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter continues, the Lord also strengthens you. He makes you strong. He makes you able. He makes you have the strength to push through to reach the end. We run with endurance. It's an endurance that you don't have. It's a strength that the Lord gives you when He gives you new mercies day by day. And the Lord establishes you. He lays you as a foundation. We are spiritual bricks being built into a spiritual house. Jesus Christ Himself is the cornerstone. But the Lord establishes you as the foundation, as the building of his house. Jesus talked about foundations in Matthew chapter 7, right? The, the man who built his house upon the rock and the one who built his house upon the sand. And when Jesus talked about that foundation of the rock, it was this same word. It was this same idea of being established in Christ. So ask yourself the question, am I building and am I being built upon the rock of Christ? Is your life being built upon and through and in the Lord Jesus Christ? Or are you being built upon the whims of emotion? Are you building upon the shifting and consuming desires of the flesh? Be built on Christ. Be built in and through His Word. The Lord will bring you through suffering, and He completes this work, this strengthening and establishing and perfecting and equipping in you. And you say, how does the Lord do that? Well, look at the next verse. To Him be dominion forever and ever. So, just two quick implications there. Firstly, the Lord is the one to whom all dominion belongs. He is the one under whom all things submit. He has dominion. He is sovereign over all. So how does the Lord work all this glory? It's because He is over all. He is in all. 
He is through all, and to Him be all glory and praise forever and ever. That's the second implication here. You see that as Peter speaks about these great truths, he breaks out in a doxology. When you see the word amen at the end, it's because this was a doxology. As Peter was thinking about these truths, they drove him to worship. As he was thinking, no doubt, about the sufferings that he had faced and his loved ones had faced and the suffering that he would face, Peter was driven to worship the Lord because of his dominion and power and sovereignty over all things. Do trials drive you to worship? Or they, do they drive you to self-focus? Peter did not look to himself, but his eyes were lifted to the glory of God. The one who keeps you is the one to whom all power and dominion belongs. Take strength and take courage and take encouragement in that. Now, we'll come now to verses 12 through 14, and this is where you just kind of get a, a, a kind of a buckshot from Peter of his final, his final thoughts, his, his closing remarks, and we we'll to look at this under the idea of standing firm in God's grace, because you just see God's varied, His manifold grace in the life of His people through what Peter says here. He says, through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I've written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son, Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. So let's think about God's varied and His manifold grace and how we stand firm in it. How does this kind of affect what came before it. Firstly, we see that Peter says that he's written through a faithful brother. I don't know if that necessarily means that Sylvanus wrote the letter or, or what, but he says, I wrote to you through him. I wrote to you to testify of the grace of God and to exhort you in the grace of God. I always think it's interesting when, when somebody talks about, I've written to you. What did the people, when they received this letter, think? Did they, did they just know beyond a shadow of doubt this is holy, inspired Scripture? Or did they just think, you know, this is an apostle, one who walked with Christ, and so we will give him authority in this, we will submit to him in this? You know, which way did they receive it? Well, we know. We've received the full revelation. We know that this is God's inspired Word, and it should be given to us to, to give us courage, to, to build us up, to strengthen us, Peter says, I've written to exhort you and to testify to you, to exhort you and to testify that this is the true grace of God. What is the true grace of God? All of what Peter has written, the suffering, the strength that God supplies, the fixing our gaze upon Christ to, to helping our minds go to think about future glory, that is all a grace of God. It is all of God's grace. How could we not be encouraged by these words written by one who so intimately knew suffering? Again, now, Peter obviously wrote this before the end of his life, but surely he had walked through the fires already. 
Surely he knew what was to come. He knew that his life was not going to end in peace and in ease and without suffering. So, dear friends, look at this and take heart because this is an intimate apostle of Christ, one of his inner circle who is writing you and exhorting you, exhorting you to stand firm in God's grace. So not only are we encouraged, but we must be pressed on. It's one thing to take encouragement and to, and to be filled with that encouragement, but we must take that next step and let that encouragement press us on. As warriors go forward in battle, take this encouragement and go out and conquer. Go out and fight. Go out and make war against sin. We're encouraged so that we stand firm. But this is not the only testimony of God's grace. We see verse 13, she who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greeting. That's fellow churches sending greetings to these saints who are suffering. Scripture doesn't have throwaway words. It does not contain things that are not useful or helpful. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching and for correction, for reproof, for rebuke, and for training in righteousness. Let's use this for encouragement, for building up. He says, these saints send you a greeting. You are not alone. You're not on an island by yourself, the only saints of God who are suffering. Stand firm, again, by seeing the sufferings of your fellow saints and know that they are with you. They are lifting you up before the throne of grace. I think another encouragement that we can see here is that the Lord is a God of restoration. Two points that we can make there. Of course, there's Peter. There's Peter who was restored by Christ in John 21. He had a great fall in denying Christ before the crucifixion. He was restored and pressed into service and ministry by Jesus. But look also at who he mentions. He says, and so does my son, Mark. We know who Mark is. Mark was that, that follower of Christ who was with Paul and Barnabas as they were out spreading the good news of Christ, but he deserted. You can go look at Acts 13 through 15 for more on that, but, but he didn't have the strength. He didn't have the courage to continue on, and that led to the split of Paul and Barnabas because they did not agree. Barnabas wanted to bring Mark back, and Paul said, absolutely not, and they parted ways. Mark, in Paul's opinion, he was not fit for ministry at that point, but God restores. Mark deserted, we know, because of the hardship of ministry. We don't know specifically what it was, but he didn't have the courage to continue. Dear friend, have you ever fallen while you've walked through trials and suffering? Have you ever sinfully doubted God? Have you ever allowed sinful fear and anxiety to creep up and overtake your mind? Well, hear this and see this, that the Lord is a God who restores. He presses His saints into ministry. Now, we must understand this carefully to know that the Lord does use damaged vessels, but there are also things that He 
keeps pure that he sets aside for specific reasons. He has standards that must be met for things like specific offices in the church. But the Lord uses all of his people. He uses his people to press forward the ministry of the gospel of Christ. So take courage in the fact that God restores. He, he uses broken vessels, even those who have sinned through trial. That doesn't mean that the trial is wasted. You can still learn. You can still be sanctified. You can still be conformed to Christ and pressed into service. And so Peter closes. We'll come to the end of verse 14. He closes, he says, greet one another with a kiss of love. And he says, peace be to you all who are in Christ. Peace will be with all who are in Christ. Life may not be peaceful, but the peace of Christ abides and remains. Life may not be peaceful, but the peace of Christ abides and remains forever and always for those who are in Him. Life may be full of tribulation, but your hope that the Lord works in you through the good news and the work of the gospel of Christ, that hope remains. It abides forever. Your hope is secured by the work of Christ. As we saw in 2 Corinthians 5, your hope is promised it is sealed by the Holy Spirit coming to live within believers. That is a promise of God. That is God telling you that He will not leave you. He is with you till the end of the age. The storms of life may be extreme. God's Word promises us that joy comes in the morning. Joy comes in the morning. How do you know this peace? Well, firstly and primarily, it's by being in Christ, by knowing the forgiveness of sin, by knowing that His work is complete. If you're not in Christ, you can't have the peace of Christ. We also know this peace by placing ourselves in daily communion with the Lord through prayer and through the study of His Word. That is how He works His peace in us. We know His peace by submitting to the authority of the preaching of God's Word. This time builds us all up. It works God's Word into our hearts and our minds. We know God's peace by regular and consistent meeting and gathering with the saints of God for worship. This is a common grace of God that we come together weekly, multiple times a week to worship, to study His Word, to fellowship, to encourage, to build one another up. And we know God's peace. Hear this one very clearly, friends. We know His peace by putting off the flesh. You say, I don't have peace. I'm in Christ. I'm in the Word. I'm meeting with the saints, but I have no peace. Dear friend, examine your life and see if there's flesh that the Lord is wanting you to cut off. Examine yourself, maybe not to see whether or not you're in the faith, but whether or not you're walking closely with the Lord. If you have unrepentant sin, you will have no peace. You have zero peace. You will have anxiety. 
You will have fear. You will have frustration. But you will have no peace. So pursue peace by pursuing God in His Word and ask the Lord to work repentance in you. We do these things by having devotion to and love for the Lord. These are not legalistic activities, but they work out because we love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So to wrap up, I'm glad that you've stayed with me. I know it's been a challenge. But to wrap up, stand firm, dear saints. Stand firm. Resist the devil. Oppose him with all your strength. Be strong in your faith because you're an alien in this world. Even the attacks of Satan are temporary. They're fleeting. They're passing. But you must stand firm and resist. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Do that because He cares for you. He loves you. He is working His eternal good and His glory in and through you. Humble yourself under Him because His grace is sufficient for your every need. Fix your eyes upon Christ. He has won your salvation He completed the work required for your salvation. He is your hope. He guards you. He keeps you. And He protects you until you are able to go to be with Him. As Peter says, to Him be all dominion forever. Paul would say it this way, to Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. To God be the glory. Great things He has done. May we walk in Him. May we war in Him. May we stand firm in the grace that He supplies, looking toward our blessed hope, the future glory of us being brought to be with Christ. We're aliens and pilgrims. Run after Christ while you're on this journey and glorify Him with every thought, with every action, with every deed, with every word. For He is worthy. He's worthy to be praised. We will close there and with this rain.